welcome, and thank you for listening to the Bellevue Sermon Podcast. Today's message comes to you from the pulpit of Bellevue Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, through our Sunday morning preaching ministry. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you, and that the Lord would use it for His glory. Amen. What a blessing to have uh, Chosen Road leading us in worship this morning. Uh, What a great time we have had together uh, already. So if you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. Again, that is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. This morning we're going to be looking at a message that is titled, The Glorious Gospel. The Glorious Gospel gospel. You know, I remember a few years ago, specifically during the peak COVID lockdown season, um, you know, we all got into new hobbies and new things when that was going on. And uh, one of mine was not really a new hobby. It was an old hobby that resurfaced. And that is that I was very interested in trying weird new fast food stuff. Um, obviously we were all sitting around watching a lot more TV probably than usual. And so these commercials would come on and I would be very much persuaded by the power of a good fast food commercial. Um, I'm really bad about seeing a random new thing on a commercial and then wanting it. And it's so bad that I remember as a child, my mom asked me what I wanted for my birthday uh, one year. And in all seriousness, I looked at her with a straight face and said, I want to try the new chicken Parmesan sandwich from Hardee's. And it was awful, right? But I got my wish. During COVID, uh, I'll never forget, Burger King had rolled out some kind of new thing. And I don't remember exactly what it was. And and you'll understand more about why in a moment. But I I was so stoked to try it. So peak COVID, I'm going out to Burger King to try this new mega bacon Whopper or whatever it was. And I I pull through the drive-thru. I unwrap the burger. And I didn't even admire it before I took a bite. And when I bite, I bite into something that was... Not at all what I expected. You see, I tried a new thing that day, and it was the impossible Whopper. Not the thing that I wanted. Now, if you're groaning, you probably understand the impossible burger, if you don't know, is essentially a veggie patty with a lot of weird stuff in it to make it taste like meat. And uh, it's gone so far in this craze today that they now have impossible wings, impossible sweet and sour pork, and so on. Uh, and if that's your thing, that's between you and God. Uh, but it was, it was so bad that I had to go home and make a, a burger with real beef at the house. Well, First Timothy, you know, we've spent a lot of time so far with the false. Uh, we've spent a lot of time so far with, with false teaching and, and with the fake things. Remember, Paul to this point is, has said, don't buy into false doctrine. Don't allow false teachers to exist in the church. We need to correct people who are teaching false doctrine because it's important for us to get this stuff right. When we're talking about the gospel, we do not have the liberty or the time or the opportunity to change and twist it because it is a matter literally of eternal life and death. And so Paul says, don't do it. Don't misuse the law. We saw last week that that there was these people who were taking the law and they were taking what was good and they were twisting it and contorting it and trying to pervert the law into something that it never was meant to be. And so, so far we've been tearing apart the false. But now Paul turns to what is real. 
And today we're focusing on the glorious gospel. And as we dig into the truth of God's word, this is like a perfectly cooked T-bone steak compared to the false, fake teaching that Paul has been addressing. Paul turns to what is real. And for us, if we don't get anything else today, we need to realize that there is nothing more real, more true, and more glorious than the gospel in all of its beauty. So if you are willing and physically able, would you please stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I'm reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thus says the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Our most kind, loving, and heavenly Father, we come before you today and Lord, we just rejoice. Lord, we rejoice for the wonderful opportunity to gather again and to praise and to give and to pray and to reflect on your goodness and your grace. But Lord, we pray now that as we approach your word, that Lord, we would not approach it lightly. Lord, we pray that the word would fall on good ground here today. Lord, that you would move in our midst, that according to your will, the gospel would would fall on receptive ears and open hearts and minds. And Lord, that you would just simply use the word that is preached today for your glory. Father, we pray that you would convict us today. You would strengthen us. You'd encourage us. You'd equip us for the work that you have ahead of us. Lord, that in all things, you would build us up and make us a people that are more pleasing to you. Lord, move me out of the way. Use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim your word to your people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I, uh, as I said in the opening here, Paul has been uh, very focused on correcting and addressing the false teaching that's running rampant in Ephesus. Uh, if you haven't been with us so far in this series, the most important thing to know is that Paul has addressed false teaching. Ephesus is where this is set. Timothy is here. He's preaching to the Ephesian church. He's leading them. But in, in spite of Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders, they have allowed false teaching to seep in. They've forgotten what they were supposed to be doing. They've lost track. They've drifted from the truth of God's word and they have fallen into something that they were never supposed to be involved with. And so Paul has addressed that false teaching. But now, Paul is turning to a word of testimony and he's turning to the truth of the gospel because this is ultimately what the Ephesian church must remember. They must remember the gospel. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love hearing about how God has changed people's lives. 
Man, I, I have heard some amazing testimonies in my life, and I'm, I'm sure you have too. But just by virtue of being in the ministry and, and, and talking to people, or, or just the opportunities I've had to go and hear different people preach and speak, I have heard testimonies from ex-hitmen, ex-drug abusers, former prostitutes, former you name it. But Paul's testimony is one that I have read time and time again, and yet I am so moved by it each time. In our verses today, Paul gives us his story. And granted, it's not quite the same angle that we approach it from when we think about Paul on the Damascus Road, right? He, we all know the story that Paul is going to persecute Christians after already having helped martyr Stephen He's on his way to go persecute more Christians, and the Lord Jesus appears to him on the side of the Damascus Road. It blinds him, and we know that in that moment, Paul is radically changed. When we think about the story today, what Paul does here is give us this very clearly. And he talks about this very spiritually here, in terms of who he was and who he now is. And we notice that in Paul's testimony, just as in all good and true testimonies, the hero of the story is not Paul. The hero of Paul's testimony is Christ. And in Paul's words here, we are given an in-depth look at the glorious gospel of Christ. And so I have four points that I want to share with you this morning from the text that hopefully will remind us just how glorious the gospel truly is. The first point is this. The gospel requisitions believers into Christ's service. The gospel requisitions believers into Christ's service. Now, I know that's a big word. Uh, Maybe you are familiar with the term requisition from requisition forms at work or something. But I think it's a great word because it's not asking. The word requisition does not suggest or ask anything. It is very clear. It carries the idea of requiring Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. It is the act of formally requiring someone to perform an action. And that is exactly what we see the Lord do to Paul here in verse 12. Paul explains that the Lord has judged him faithful and appointed him to his service. Paul has been appointed to the service of Christ. And and we see this in the way that Paul talks about himself. How many times does Paul refer to himself as a slave of Christ? A doulos is the Greek word. I am a servant. I am a slave. I am someone who does what Christ requires of me. And this is what Paul has done. He was drafted into the service of the Lord and he was appointed for a specific task. For Paul, it was not optional. And for those of us who are true believers in Christ, serving the Lord's kingdom is not optional. I know it's hard. I know it's demanding. I know that we have so many other things going on in our life, quote unquote, or air quotes, whatever you want to say there. We have all these reasons why why serving the Lord is, is difficult or hard for us, but guys, the life of the Christian is a life of service to the Lord. In the early 1900s, a London newspaper ran an ad that said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. 
honor and recognition in case of success. The ad was from the famous Arctic explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton. And wildly enough, thousands upon thousands of men responded to the ad. Warren Wearsby famously compared this to the call to serve the Lord. And Wearsby says this, If Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this. Men and women wanted for difficult task of helping to build my church. You will often be misunderstood even by those working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor, labor and your full reward will not come until after all your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life. But I'm here to tell you, though, that even when that is the case, we cannot and must not stop working for the Lord. We must press on, ever like the disciples. Remember, the disciples were not to get discouraged. If they couldn't preach the gospel in one place, they were to keep on moving. It didn't matter if people came after them or not. They were to to press forward, ever in the service of the Lord. We are required by Scripture to serve God. Many people take that as a suggestion or an option. But as the old saying goes, we're not saved to sit, but we're saved to serve. And that service comes in many different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's physical service. The things that no one thinks about or cares about, right? Stuff like cleaning up a fellowship hall or mopping floors or replacing air filters or cutting grass or, or, or helping an elderly person with their groceries. Sometimes that service is spiritual. It's teaching and encouraging and counseling and praying. But all of us better be using the gifts that God has given us to serve his kingdom well. And like I said, I know the temptation. The temptation is to make a list of excuses about why you can't. Oh, I'm not skilled. right? I, can't, I don't have the skills to do this. Moses made that exact same argument. But notice what Paul says. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. The him here is Jesus Christ. The Lord called Paul to service. And then he strengthened and enabled Paul to serve. And so we don't have an excuse. If if the Lord has called us to serve him, then he will strengthen us and he will enable us to complete the task. Another excuse, though, is, well, you know, with my background, the Lord can't use me. And that's not true either. Paul, as we'll see in a moment, was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of the gospel. And yet the Lord, we see, will strengthen us for the service, but even our faithfulness comes from the Lord. The Lord judged Paul faithful. Not because Paul was faithful. Paul was a murderer, a persecutor, a blasphemer. And so the Lord judged Paul faithful, not because Paul was faithful, but according to the riches of God's grace in Jesus, he made Paul faithful. And so what verse 12 tells us here very clearly is this, you are able to serve the Lord if you are a believer and you better. A call to salvation is a call to serve the Lord with gladness in all of our life. The gospel requisitions us into service. As the children's song says, we may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, or shoot the artillery, but we are in the Lord's army, an army of servants for his kingdom. And so the gospel requisitions us 
into his service. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see that the gospel redeems even the worst of us. The gospel redeems even the worst of us. And this is drawn from verses 13 through 15 here. Who was Paul formerly? We know that he was involved in the murder of Stephen. And here Paul tells us exactly who he was. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer. A persecutor. An opponent of the gospel. I acted ignorantly. I am the foremost or chief of sinners. These are the statements that Paul is saying about himself. And none of these are light statements. I mean, just thinking about what blasphemy is. To deny the character of God. To kill people who were used by the Lord and serving the Lord to be an opponent, to try to prevent the gospel from being spread. These are not light charges. Paul says, I acted ignorantly. And we realize that for all of us who, who are believers, when we are in our, our default state, we live in this, in this arrogant ignorance where we continually say, oh, well, there's no God. And then Paul says, I'm the foremost or chief of sinners. Now, it's important for us to realize what's happening here. This is not just Paul engaging in some self-loathing. This is not Paul being down in the dumps or being depressed. This is just an accurate assessment of who he was. And if we're being real, if we're a believer, most of us have a similar story. But Paul received mercy. That's the language of who he was, right? All good testimonies start with uh, our, our tremendous sin in the, in the past tense. We realize that we still are engaged in a war against sin. But that's who he formerly was. Who is he now? Or how did he get there? Paul received mercy, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus overflowed for Paul and he was given faith and love. He was saved by grace in Christ Jesus. That is the saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ came to save sinners, of which he was the chief. So what happened to Paul? He's changed by the grace of God. And now the blasphemer blesses, the persecutor preaches, and the insolent is now innocent before a holy God. That is the power of the gospel. When we read that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and is able to save even the foremost or the chief of sinners, that should encourage us. Christ came into the world. He left the splendors of heaven to come and be born as a baby in a manger. He was truly God and truly man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross bearing the punishment and dying the death we deserved. And he gives us his righteousness so that we might be judged faithful before God as if we had kept the law perfectly. And we're saved when we put our faith in him and repent of sin and follow him as Lord of our life. And he washes us white as snow even if we are the vilest sinner there is. His grace is sufficient. This is trustworthy. This is worthy of all of us fully accepting it. That Christ can redeem even 
the worst. Thomas Bilney was a, a famous English reformer, and uh, he ultimately led one of my heroes, Hugh Latimer, to Christ. But Bilney's conversion came directly from our text today. You see, when the Bible was translated by Erasmus into Latin, Bilney, he finally felt that he could understand the word of God. And listen to what Bilney said in his testimony. He says, my soul was sick and I longed for peace, but nowhere could I find it. I went to the priests and they assigned me penance and pilgrimages, yet these things did not set my soul free and cannot. But at last I heard of Jesus. It was then, when the New Testament was set forth by Erasmus, that the light came. I I bought the book being drawn by the Latin rather than the word of God, for at that time I knew not what the word of God meant. But on my first read, I happened upon these words. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This one sentence through God's inward working did so light up my poor bruised spirit that the very bones within me leaped for joy and gladness. It was as if after a long dark night, day had suddenly broken. Bilney read this and he he was completely changed. The gospel is glorious. May we never take for granted the fact that God saving sinners is the most amazing thing we can ever understand. That a holy God, perfect, would love and save us. Romans 5.8 is truly a marvel that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what this tells us is if you are here today, you're, you're not too far gone. You're not irredeemable. If God can save Saul, a murderer, a blasphemer, a persecutor, he can save you too. Turn to Christ. Throw yourself on his mercy. As Spurgeon once said, we are great sinners, but we have a great Christ for our need. If you are a sinner, your greatest need and your only hope in life and death is Christ Jesus, and he can save you even at your worst. There's an old hymn that you may not be familiar with. It says this. Chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Died that I might live on high and lives that I may never die. The gospel redeems even the worst of us. Thirdly this morning, I want us to see that the gospel reveals The gospel reveals God's faithfulness and grace. In verse 16, we see very clearly that Paul explains the reason that God shows him mercy. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's point here is profound. The reason that God showed Paul mercy was for his own glory and to demonstrate his perfections 
to other believers. As always, the the purpose of salvation is not just that a person can escape hell and go to heaven. So often we reduce salvation to just that, right? It's a a get-out-of-jail-free card for so many people. Oh, it's about me not going to hell. That's the primary motivator, right? But that's not the purpose of salvation. And the purpose for saving Paul here was not even that that God needed someone to preach the gospel. God, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, could have had anyone do that. The purpose of Paul's salvation and every person's salvation is to display God's glory and his power and his patience and his perfections in all things. Paul's point is, as we said earlier, God can save anyone he chooses. If God is patient with Paul... He's also been patient with us and will be patient with us. As I think about my life, I can't help but constantly thank the Lord that he has been patient with me. Because he didn't have to be. right? I mean, in his justness, in his holiness, he would be perfectly justified to not be patient. And yet, in his grace and his love, he is. The example here is clear. You see, we're those people who would believe in Jesus for eternal life, right? We're the people who this example is for. If we follow Jesus and trust him, we are those very people to whom Paul's salvation is an example of God's patience. And we must remember that God is truly patient. He was patient with us when we were still lost in sin. The fact that God allows us to live in sin for even a moment is amazing patience. And yet, God bears with us and is patient toward us and he works everything out according to his will and his timing. He's gracious and kind. He's patient. But God's not only patient with us when we're lost in sin, he's also patient with us as believers. Even as we believe and are saved, we can all realize we are nowhere near where we need to be. So often we're quick to forget the things of God. Sometimes we neglect those things that are needed for our souls. And then sometimes we just do things that we know we ought not do. We fall back into those sins of old or we we continue to have nagging sins that we need to put to death. And yet, even in those moments, God is patient to us in Christ. He's patient. Some of us need to be clearly reminded that God is patient toward us and gracious. We we need to realize that that the Lord is a good and gracious God who is patient with us. And others of us need to be reminded very clearly that that patience points us even more clearly to his glory and that he will not be patient forever. Listen to the words of the Puritan Stephen Charnock. He said, presume not upon God's patience. It's not eternal. You are at present under his patience. Yet while you are unconverted, you're also under his anger. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked. 
You know not how soon his anger may turn his patience aside and step before it. It may be his sword is drawn out of the scabbard. His arrows may be settled in his bow. And perhaps there is but a little time before you may feel the edge of one or the point of the other. And there will be no more time for patience in God to us or petition from us to him. If we die without repentance, he will no longer mercy to pardon nor patience to bear. God is patient with us now, infinitely, graciously, wonderfully patient with us at this moment. But friends, we know that we can trust God is patient now, but that he will not be forever. And since God is patient, believe now. As scripture tells us, today is the day of salvation. If you're out here thinking that you can do whatever you want and that God will save you later, you are presuming on the patience of God. Know that he is patient, but he is also just and will not be mocked. So take occasion today to trust in him, to repent of sin, and to follow Christ with all your life. Fourthly and finally this morning, I want to show you that the gospel response is worship. The gospel response is worship. As Paul's working through all this, we see an interjection here. In verse 17, Paul just breaks out into worship. Verse 17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul can't help but interject praise after reflecting on God's grace to him. We should be the same way. If we ever grow callous or indifferent about what God has done for us, we should be very concerned. Paul, at the thought of God's grace to him, breaks out into praise. And here's why. A great sinner, forgiven at such a great price, has no option but to fall before the Lord and proclaim that the king is great and deserves all glory forever. Many of you are likely familiar with the famous Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah. Even if you're not a classical music person, you've heard this before. I remember when I was a child, my dad would always stand when he heard the chorus of Hallelujah. And my brother and I found that we could manipulate him into doing it. And he would play along with us. If we would poorly sing Hallelujah chorus, he would stand up. And I asked him, I said, why do you do that? And he explained to me the history behind the famous tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus. If you don't know the story, you should look it up. There's a lot of people have theories about it, but the, the most obvious and clear theory is what we know to be true. King George II started the tradition by famously standing up during the chorus in a crowded theater. Now, under British rule, it's important for us to realize the king would never stand while others sat. The king sat and everyone else stood. It was a sign of honor and a sign of respect. And yet at that moment, even though it was considered royally improper, he was struck by the chorus. The chorus says this, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And at that moment, King George rises to his feet because he is paying respect and worship to his king, Jesus Christ, who is king of kings and lord of lords. 
Even the king of the world's strongest power at the time worshiped the Lord when confronted with the truth of the gospel. Will we be outdone by a monarch? So many of us can hear the gospel and yet you remain unmoved. Even today, as we think about the gloriousness of the gospel, we read of how Paul was redeemed even as such an awful sinner. We read this, we hear this, you've heard the gospel, and yet you, you sit there and you feel completely, absolutely nothing. You're dull, you're bored, whatever. And I, I'm not talking about physically unmoved, right? We can, we can move around physically, right? We can weep for days, we can throw ourselves, we can dance, we can bow, we can do whatever, but it means absolutely nothing if we do not worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And the warning is very clear. If the gospel does not call you to worship, and if the gospel is something that just becomes an old hat thing or a boring thing or whatever, then you do not realize the depths of the mercy of God and the depths of your sin. As I said earlier, a great sinner forgiven at such a price cannot help but greatly praise their great Savior. And if we take anything out of that formula, the whole thing falls apart. If we don't see ourselves as a great sinner, we won't praise him because we weren't that far gone. If we don't see the great price that was paid on our behalf, we won't praise him as we should because we think we earned it or worked for it or it wasn't that big a deal. And if we don't see Jesus as great, we will not worship him. If we fail to see the greatness of our sin, the greatness of the cost, the greatness of Christ, we will never worship as we should. But these things should be so obvious. I think though some of us have never truly praised the Lord because we don't truly love the Lord and Christ. We love the things of the church, right? the institution, the moral teachings. We like social Christianity but we don't love Christ. And if you love all those other things, but don't see Christ as great and worthy to be praised, then it's no wonder why we don't praise him. One of the questions I get a lot, uh, and I'm preparing right now even to, to teach a class on the, the doctrine of heaven. And so whenever we think about eternity and, and, and where we're going to spend our eternal life, people always will ask, how in the world are we going to praise God for all of eternity? How in the world are we going to praise God for all of eternity? Let me tell you this. In heaven, as you see the full glory and greatness of God Almighty, there is no way we will be unable to praise him even for a minute. Because he is that great. Forever and ever be glory to the king of the ages. The true and living God should receive all the worship we can bring. And it's, no, and it's so small compared to what he deserves. He owns all things. There's nothing we can give him, but we are called to give him everything we have, to pour out our praise to God forever and ever, to God be the glory. We've sang it a million times, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. The only response we have to the gospel is one of true worship and thanksgiving and praise. How you respond to the gospel tells us the state of your soul. If you don't care, your soul is sick. We are to fall down in worship. And so as we conclude our sermon this morning, I just want to close with this. Take a look through Scripture and look at the people that God has saved and that God has used. We've all heard the the Sunday school stories. We've seen the the social media posts, for example, where people will say, you know, David was a murderer and an adulterer. Noah was a drunk. You know, you go through the list and look at all the flaws. And we need to be careful to realize that's not a, a license to sin. It's not saying we can do whatever we want. But it is an example and an encouragement that God can save anyone he chooses and he can use anyone he chooses. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture says we all have. It says that the wages of that is death. Don't presume upon the patience of God, but instead throw yourself on his grace. The only way we can come to the Lord is through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God's grace is sufficient to save and secure. But if you have been saved, you must serve his kingdom and you must praise his name. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God in heaven, we come before you once more today and Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you have redeemed and saved sinners. Lord, you show your love to us. And that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a great price you paid. Lord, may we not take it for granted. And so, Lord, I pray that here today, if there are those who are lost, if there are those in sin, that you would call them to yourself. Lord, you would redeem them by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there are believers here today who have grown callous to your word and the gospel, that Lord, you would wake them from their slumber and you would have them to praise you like never before and to serve you with every aspect of their being. God, have your way in our church, in our lives, and in this place. Lord, we ask that your will be done now. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.